We jump back into the study of 1 John. We've done an introduction sermon, which is really so important to help you understand kind of the lay of the land. Uh, And then I walked you through verses 1 through 5 of chapter 1 a couple weeks ago. Well, this morning we're in 1 John 1, 5 through chapter 2, verse 2. So please follow along as I read. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. We're in the series called Assured Child of God. I've highlighted to you a number of times already that John is writing this book to let the Christians that are in these churches in Asia Minor know that they are right before God. They are his children. Now, why would he need to write that message to them? Because there were people that have been leaving their churches, we'll call them the departed. The departed have been leaving their churches and they're criticizing the people who remain, saying, you're not right with God. You don't understand this rightly about God. You don't understand that rightly about God. And so these departed people have left and they still have a voice and they're still being listened to by this remaining church and John won't have it. No, no, no. You are the anointed ones. You are the children of God. And so, so much of this book has the shadow of those departed people hanging over it. A lot of people read 1 John without thinking about that departed group. They just think, okay, what does God say to me? What's true of a Christian? What's true of a non-Christian? Where am I at? That's not the way to read 1 John. The way to read 1 John is understand the departed voices are being listened to by people in the church. And John's writing with apostolic authority saying, no, you listen to me. I'm proclaiming to you the message that God gave to me. This is what's true, and you believe this, so rest assured that you have eternal life with God. Even the sins that are pointed out in this book are sins characteristic of those departed people. So that's what's happening here. Now, today, there are people, we can all go through these times where we aren't really assured of where we stand before God. We don't feel saved. We don't feel like children of God. I think there are a couple of reasons for that. Sometimes those who sin and hide it and excuse it and even maybe major on the sin of others and not on their own, those people can often have a lack of assurance at the end of the day. And it's kind of understandable as to why they would. And I think that this passage should 
shine some light on the fact that if that is you, your assurance meter should be low. But for those who are walking in the light, which in this passage does not mean moral perfection, we'll talk about that in a little bit. Those who are walking in the light and being honest and open with God, confessing their sin, acknowledging their sin, those people sometimes, even they struggle with the assurance of their salvation. Why? Because they're fixated on their stains and not on the fact that Jesus washes them. We can all do this. We can read passages about being secure in God's love. We can read passages about the fact that Jesus died for us. We can read all those passages and we can go, yes, I know God saves. I know it's by faith. It's not by works. But I've got these stains. I've got this sin before my Father in heaven. And we stop right there. And therefore, the lack of assurance. When in this passage, John moves us from that, and he says, you're right, you do have sin. Don't deny it. In fact, if you deny that you have sin, now we've got a problem. But admit your sin, be open to it, don't deny it. But when you acknowledge it, you've got a Savior who died for you. You've got one that's cleansed you from your sin, forgiven you. You've got an advocate. You've got one who has propitiated the wrath of God, absorbed the wrath of God. He, he throws all these realities into this passage because he wants believers to have their hearts at rest, even when they have sin that still creeps up. So even this Christian who has sin in their life, when they are open and acknowledge it, can enjoy the assurance that comes from the salvation given by Jesus Christ. And that's what I want for you so badly. It's what I want for me so badly. Hearts that are at rest because of what Jesus Christ has done. I've entitled this message, Sin and the Child of God. We need to make sense of kind of where sin fits with the fact that I'm a child of God. And that's what John does in this passage. Again, because of the departed people, the departed party, the cessationists, whatever you want to call them, those who have left, because of the departed party, John's writing to his flock that has remained in order to bring clarity about the relationship of sin and them being a child of God. So he gives three clarifying facts about sin as it relates to the child of God. And I think that these will be very helpful for us to hear from the Apostle John. Three clarifying facts about sin as it relates to the child of God. The first is this. The child of God does not deny sin. The child of God doesn't deny sin. And if you want some synonyms for deny, doesn't disregard sin, doesn't excuse sin, doesn't act like they don't have sin, that's the idea. The child of God doesn't deny sin. We see this in verses 5 through 10. Let me read those verses again. This is the message we've heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. You see the back and forth there. The one who's a child of God admits their sin, confesses their sin. The one that's evidently not a child of God is the one that walks in darkness and doesn't expose his sin, doesn't admit his sin. In fact, even denies that he may have it. 
So a child of God does not deny their sin. Verse 5 starts out, this is the message we've heard from him and proclaimed to you. Paul, kind of standing on his apostolic authority again, Jesus has sent me and those like me, those apostles, to give you a message. And here's the message. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Now, why would John start there? Why doesn't he say, God is the creator? I'm going to start my epistle that way. God is faithful. Why doesn't he start his epistle that way? Why does he say here at the beginning of the letter, God is light? Because the fact that God is light means that he is morally perfect. No darkness at all. He actually says that right after he says God is light. No darkness at all. He is morally perfect, morally upright, and who he is kind of illuminates what is out there. Like the light shines in the darkness, and when the light comes, it, it reveals what things are. So he's morally perfect. He's righteous. There's no darkness in him, no evil in him. Therefore, his children don't walk in darkness. So he starts with the attribute of God, the fact that he is light, because God's children also walk in light. So it's no wonder he starts there. Because these departed people would say they're children of God, but when you walk around with them, you're walking around in a lot of darkness. So he's saying it doesn't match up. God is light, therefore his children will walk in the light. This is the message we've heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Again, who could he be referring to? these departed people. So church, if, if we all say that God is light, but we walk in darkness, we don't actually have fellowship with him. So don't say that kind of thing. You might, have, you might hear people say that they're his children, but they walk in the darkness, those people out there that have departed. Don't say that. Don't live like that. We lie, actually. This is helpful for us. Children of God look like God. Children of their father look like their father. It's not perfect. John allows for the presence of sin in a believer's life in our passage this morning. But, but if we follow a God who's light and he's changed our hearts and literally shown light into our hearts according to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, then we walk in the light. So if we're walking in the darkness, but say we're children of the light, it doesn't make sense. It's not true. We actually lie. Verse 7, but if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So notice, please understand this, walking in the light here in 1 John doesn't mean sinless perfection. You might think, you, you read these verses, you think, okay, it says the one who walks in the light is, is a child of God. I don't walk in the light. I mean, I've got these sins that I still hate and do, and I confess them, and I repent, and I know he's forgiven them, but I'm not walking in the light. I still do this thing. No, no, you don't understand what he means by walking in the light. Walking in the light here in First John isn't moral perfection when it comes to the child of God. Read it again, verse 7. 
If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. It says that we're walking and we're exposing our sin and Jesus cleanses it. Walking in the darkness is the equivalent of sinning and not caring, sinning and hiding it, sinning and excusing it. That's walking in the darkness. When the believer walks in light, they have a pattern of righteousness in their life, and when they sin and this stain comes in, the stain of darkness, they admit it. They say, Lord, look at this. I hate this. Look at this again. His son cleanses it. His son forgives it. That's walking in the light. It's an open honesty about where you're at, trusting in his son to cleanse it. That's why he says at the end of our passage this morning, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. So so I'm writing so that you don't sin. Stop sinning. Don't sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. So walking in the light in 1 John isn't sinless perfection. It is being honest and confessing and being and admitting the sin that we do still have. And we're to know that his son cleanses us from that sin. Verse 8, he, he does the kind of opposite thing again. If we say we have no sin, evidently this was a problem. He had to repeat it. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Isn't that interesting? The one that says they have no sin acts as if they know all things. I'm in the right, other people are in the wrong. Well, what about this sin? No, 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 I I don't struggle with that. But it seems like you do. No, 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 you misunderstand me. Whoa, there's a lot of saying that you're without sin there. But it's interesting that person's actually wrong. They deceived themselves. If we say we have no sin, we deceive, our, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. This is evidently what was happening with the departed. A self-righteous group criticizing the remaining believers and even the way they criticized was sinful. We'll go through this letter and we'll see Paul or John warning the church about people on the outside the world that has a lack of love. That's those departed. There's a lack of love. There's a lack of right teaching about who Jesus is. But in their eyes, they've got nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong. No sin. Now, there are a lot of people that don't openly admit or don't openly acknowledge and, and try to get you to believe that they have no sin whatsoever. People aren't actually, very few of them, very few people are walking around saying, I've, I don't sin at all. But a lot of people walk around acting as if they don't sin at all. They will say, oh, I'm such a sinner. But you, you say, hey, I see something in your life. Then uh, beware, the guns are coming out. They're going after you. Or, hey, I, I heard what you did there. No, 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 you misunderstand. You're wrong. This is that group, the departed. The self-righteous, the right ones, criticizing John's little flock. And so he's writing to show them that this isn't the way of a child of God. Failing to admit your sin isn't a way that a child of God lives. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And then this, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. 
and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you see how in this passage, John the Apostle, writing to his little children in the faith, writing to reassure them, isn't writing, acting as if Christians never sin. He knows they do. He'll call them later on to stop doing it, but he knows they do, and he keeps trying to remind them of the forgiveness that they have when they're honest about it before God. If we confess our sins, if we admit it, if we agree with him about how bad this is, he is faithful. He will continue to love. He will continue to forgive. He won't let go. He is faithful to always, always, always love and keep his own. He's faithful. And he's just. So, so the fear is now, well, if, if God just kind of like, ah, don't worry about that. It's not a big deal. Now his character can be called into question. But he's, because he's not a good and just God. A good and just God doesn't wink at sin. Doesn't disregard sin. And so in our God, we get the best he will not regard us for the sin that we've committed. He will not hold that against us, but he will punish it because it's real. So he punishes it on his son, who willingly himself came to receive it. He punishes the sin on his son, and he says, you're forgiven without his righteousness and without his justice being compromised. So he's faithful to us to forgive, and he's still just and righteous. He didn't just let it go. He punished it. Wrath for Jesus, salvation, forgiveness for us. That's what we get in the gospel. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We are born into this world and we have sin. I say this over and over to people when I try to make this point. You know, you don't need to tell kids how to pinch and hit and bite and be selfish. You don't have to teach them. Okay, now listen, now sit down, perfect little angel. I'm gonna, I'm gonna teach you some things that people do out there. Now, no, no, they come out knowing it. You do need to teach them what love looks like, what selflessness looks like what care for others looks like. We come out stained. We are stained. And so the call to the Christian is just admit where you're at before God. Acknowledge what he says to be righteous in the scriptures that, that you're not doing or you fail to do. Admit it before him and let him wash that sin away. You ever kind of got dressed and put on your clothes and you kind of get in the car, you go to where you're going, and all of a sudden you realize, oh man, in the daylight, I've got this huge purple stain on my shoulder. And you kind of are at the dinner with friends, and you're kind of just doing this number or whatever it may be. <laughs> you might be successful in hiding it from them, probably not, but don't ever try to do that with God. He knows it all. He is light. You think of Adam and Eve sinning, and hiding. It's like, did you guys remember who you've been walking with? Do you remember that he created everything? He probably is pretty good at hide and seek. He knows things. It's so stupid, isn't it, when we think of Adam and Eve hiding? Guess what we so often do? 
we think that because we can hide it from people, therefore somehow we can hide it from God. And show up on judgment day and he'll say, what's that over there? What are you talking about? I mean, he's not stupid, friends. He knows. So confess. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All of it. My sin is deeper purple than everybody else at this church. Yes, he can cleanse all of it. Even this, even that. Admit your sin to God. He sent his son to cleanse sin, to make a remedy for sin. That's why he came. That's what he majors in. Admit it to him. Let him cleanse it. And then verse 10 again, just for good measure. If we say we have not sinned, you get the point here? Don't say that. Don't act like that. Don't act as if you haven't. Don't act as if you don't. If we say we have not sinned, not only do we lie, we make him a liar. John ramps up the consequences here. It's one thing earlier, earlier when he says, if, if we say we have no sin, we are lying. But now, if we say we don't sin, we're calling God a liar. Because God has declared to us that all of us sin. And so when we say, well, not me, not only are we lying, we're making him a liar, and his word is not in us. Ecclesiastes 7, 9, we just looked at this when we studied Ecclesiastes together. God made man upright, but he, man, has sought out many schemes. Well, not me. I mean, God made, God made us all upright, and everyone else seeks out many schemes. They oppose God, but, but me, I'm, I'm good. No, no, you're lying about God. You're lying about you, and you're lying about God. Or 2 Chronicles 6.36, there is no one who does not sin. So when someone acts as if they don't sin, they are lying about God. So the child of God does not disregard their sin. That's why in 2 Corinthians, Paul says, what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? Children of God who is light, children of God, walk in the light. And again, that's not speaking of moral perfection. It's speaking of open and openness and honesty about their sin. That is walking in the light and having it forgiven, bringing it to the light. That's why it's so important for us to have relationships where we can do that with one another. Doesn't mean you gotta do that in front of the whole church, okay? Your turn today, come on up here. It's not, you gotta do that. But do you have people that love you that you can say, man, I am tempted to be impatient and I've actually given in a number of times this week. I'm asking you to pray with me. This is wrong. This is not right. We need people that we can confess sin with. Please be confessing sin to God on a daily basis throughout the day. Do not want to get into the habit of going long periods of time without admitting who you are before God and asking him to change you and to forgive you and to strengthen you in that area. Your family is better off when you confess sin. Your church is better off when you confess sin. Walking in the light brings a certain fellowship and a certain joy with it. 
Friends, this is one of the most definitive passages in the New Testament about the need to confess sin and the, and the, the grace that God gives when we do that. This is a good God. We can admit who we are before Him. So I'd encourage you, ad- admit your sin to God thoroughly. Don't, don't just say things like, oh God, here I go again. I'm impatient. You know, silly me. Is, is that really confession? Like, God, here's why I was impatient an hour ago. Here's why I jumped down that person's throat when they said this. Because I'm fearful of what, just talk to him. Vomit up to him what's foul inside. God, this is why I did this. I know I've done this. I've done it yet again, and this is who it hurt. God, I'm asking you to not just forgive me, but please keep changing me. You do that type of thing on a daily basis, you're going to be a blessing to others around you. You're going to be walking in the light with God your Father. And that type of talk before God, and then saying to Him, and I know that your Son has been faithful to forgive me and will do it again. I praise you for that. That gives you an assurance of where you stand. Listen, can I tell you a little secret? (laughs) Mature people in Christ, assured people in Christ, aren't people who have no sin. They finally figured it out. I haven't sinned in 20 years. Now I'm mature and I'm assured of where I'm going. No, no, no. They know that they sin and they talk to God about it, but they know that Jesus Christ came to die for that. So they rest there and their hearts are assured before God. So the gospel is what assures us, not our own perfection or performance. So actually confess your sin thoroughly. Pastor John read this earlier, Proverbs 28, 13. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them, listen to this promise, will obtain mercy. Confess, forsake, find mercy, obtain mercy. So John writes to clarify to his children, listen, The people out there don't really care about their sin. They act as if they don't have it. But the child of God does not deny their own sin. So confess it. Bring it to him. That's what walking in the light looks like. Secondly, he wants them to know that a child of God is commanded not to sin. So so before you think, okay, then big deal if I sin. Because I just kind of go and confess it. I'll just say what Pastor Andrew said to do and I'll confess it and Forgiven every time, no big deal. Well, hold on a second. Yes, confess your sin, but also make an effort not to sin. Stop doing it. Chapter 2, verse 1, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. The fact that we have someone who has forgiven our sin, past, present, and future, does not lead the child of God into then wanting to sin because, oh, it's going to be forgiven. No, no, no. I know he's forgiven my sin. Therefore, now, I all the more don't want to do it because I know what it took to forgive that. And I love him. And I do not want to sin against him. I do not want to hurt the people around me. I do not want to do this. The child of God is commanded not to sin. You know, it's kind of a silly illustration, but I think it may help drive this home a bit. Um, As many of you know, I'm a New York Mets fan. 
I know. Why? I don't know. I am. Um, sports teams often have rivals, and they're bitter rivals. There's animosity, you know, like that. Um, ASU, Arizona, I mean, you, you understand rivalries, okay? So New York Mets fan, our rivals are the Yankees. I mean, they just, you just turn your nose up at all things Yankees, okay? If I told you somehow someone made me a New York Met, I mean, they, they put the ability inside of me, they put the ability to run, hit, throw, catch. I, I, I just showed up in the clubhouse one day and I had a uniform on. Oh my goodness, I've been made a New York Met. I mean, it's, I got Met DNA, orange and blue blood. That's, they just made me that way. And someone said, okay, great. Made you a Met. Let, let's go. We're going to play. Let's see how you run, hit, throw. I can do it. I mean, look, I can never do this before. Now I'm throwing 90 miles an hour. Look at this. And then they say, now, we're playing the Yankees tonight and we can't stand them. I mean, they, they smell of arrogance and greed. That's just what they are. We can't stand them. And I say something like, oh, they're not that bad. <laughs> what? I thought you were made a New York Met. Well, yeah, I mean, look at them. I mean, I don't really want to beat them. Whoa, 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 whoa. I thought you were a New York Met. When you're a Met, you have to hate the Yankees. And if you don't, then we question whether you're a Met. If you're a child of God and you do not care about sinning, just trying to hide it, where are you really at here? This isn't matching up. Paul says if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Now again, that's not speaking of a moral perfection yet. But we do have new loves. Christ, his people, we even start loving the world when we once did. We care about their future. We have new loves, but listen, when you become a Christian, you also receive new hates. He gives you a new disgust with sin. This is our testimony as Christians. All of you can stand up here and tell me about the sin that you held on to and now how you hate it. Even if you were saved as a young child, I was selfish, arrogant, and I hate that. I want to be selfless like my Savior. I want to be humble like my Savior. We don't just get new loves, we get new hates. And the Bible assumes that children of God will hate their sin and seek to put it to, get, to death. Not coddle it, not enjoy it, not try to get away with it, not act as if they don't have it, but, but they will admit it. They will say, this is what's hurting right now. This is, what's, this is the cancer that's still here. Please look at, with me over at Colossians 3. I think this is a good illustration for this. Colossians 3. Colossians 3, 1 through 4 is this great passage that's written to believers to realize that their future belongs in heaven. They are as good as seated at the right hand of God right now with Christ. It's such a comforting passage. In fact, the whole book of Colossians is written to tell believers who are being told by other people, here we go again, you're not in the right. 
you haven't had the dreams that I have. You haven't had the visions that I have. You don't keep the same observant days that I keep. You're not in the right. And the book of Colossians is written, if I can summarize it in one of the verses from chapter 2, to say, listen, listen, child of God, don't let anyone disqualify you. Don't let anyone disqualify you. And then we get this turning point in the letter, chapter 3, verses 1 to 4, where he's saying, listen, you are seated with Christ. You have, you have a home in heaven. Now, right there, you might think, all right, whew, I'm saved. I'll just kind of sit here and wait around. No, look at chapter 3, verse 5. Therefore, put to death what is earthly in you. Because you're a child of God, assured of heaven, now while you wait for Christ to come down from heaven, while you wait, you go to war with your sin. You seek to murder it. Therefore, put to death what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, murder that. Impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. God's coming to judge people for those things. Don't do those same things that he's forgiven you for that they will be judged for. In these things you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Don't lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Put on the image of your creator. Put, put on the new you that God has given you. Put on Jesus Christ. Go down to 14. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. Above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Paul assumes that when you become a Christian, you are forgiven of your sins, and you will go to war with the remaining sin. You'll go to war when it tries to creep up into your life. So, when he talks early on about confession, be open about your sin, be honest about it, knowing that it's forgiven by Jesus, and that you can kind of rest there and have a sigh of relief. Rest in the hope of the gospel. Rest in where you will be forever. Rest in the salvation you have. Now with the other hand, go and seek to slit the throat of all the sin that comes up in your life that you still have. Go to war with it. That's what a child of God does. I'm forgiven, and I'm going to eradicate this sin in my life. Third and final point. There's a third and final clarifying fact about sin in the life of a believer, and it's this. The child of God doesn't pay for sin. The child of God doesn't disregard sin, and the child of God is commanded actually not to sin. But if they do sin, even as they're trying to go to war, the child of God will not pay for sin. What a great place to end. God has made a provision in case the child of God does sin. I, I love the way he says it. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, it's as if he knows us, right? 
It's as if God is aware of who we are. But if anyone does sin, we're almost, I mean, imagine never hearing the rest of the verse. Hey, I'm writing this to you so that you won't sin. Oh, man. I know I don't want to. That's not going to be easy. And then he says, but if anyone does sin, okay, yeah? (laughs) Then what? Then what happens? If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. We have one that stands representing us to the Father. What a beautiful picture of exactly who Jesus Christ is, an advocate. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate. We have someone who stands there before the Father and pleads for us, makes an argument for us. We have an attorney that stands there and represents us to the Father. This is an intercessor, the one that talks to God on our behalf. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Now, Jesus Christ himself, as he's talking to the Father about us, is righteous. If he was unrighteous, he'd say things to his father like, well, they didn't really mean it. No, 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 that's not righteousness. No, I did mean it when I sinned that way. So Jesus righteously represents us. He doesn't lie about our sin or belittle it or not make it sound so bad. Yes, Father, he's done it again. She's done it again. It is not your standard. It is not what they've been called to do. So we don't stand rightly before God the Father because Jesus kind of softens it before God. No, no, no. Jesus is righteous. What is he saying before the Father? What, how is it that we aren't guilty anymore? Because Jesus stands before the Father as the one who's already paid the penalty, already done the time already been executed for that, already received the wrath of God in our place. And it's so interesting to me that in heaven we will receive glorified bodies, but yet as Jesus rose from the dead, he still had scars on his hands. Why in the world would that be the case? Because heaven will know that he's the slain lamb who died for us. And so as he stands as an advocate there, he stands there telling the father, yes, they've sinned again, but I've died for them. And the father who also loves us receives that from the Son, and we are not guilty. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sin. He is the one who absorbed the wrath of God because of our sin. He got in the way of God's wrath aimed at us, and he stepped in front and absorbed it in our place. That was his desire to do that. It was the Father's desire to have him do that. They're of one mind. They stand in the way. I mean, think of yourself, think of it was you being put on that cross. And you're laying there and you're thinking, I know why this is happening. I deserve all this. I'm not just afraid of these nails, but the anger of God is going to be unleashed on me and I don't know what that's going to feel like. And all of a sudden, as the first nail's about to be driven in, you hear the clank, you hear it, but you don't feel a thing. And you hear Jesus Christ cry out in pain and groan. And you think, oh, what just happened? I deserve to be here. I deserve all this pain. I deserve this torture. And I deserve whatever it looks like for God to be angry at me forever and to execute his righteous justice on me. And all of a sudden, the hammer comes down again and clank, and you don't feel a thing. And Jesus Christ screams out. 
because he received it. That's what we get. That's what we get in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus came to do. And then it wasn't just that his hands were nailed and his feet were nailed. He absorbed the hostile, angry wrath of God in our place that we deserved. And we didn't feel a thing, nor will we ever feel a thing. God sent his son to do that. And again, God the Father is not cruel. His son willingly desired to do that for us. And we have fellowship with the Father and with the Son, and we will never pay for our sin. I mean, as I'm saying this, it's almost too good to be true. It's almost unbelievable. But the Bible all throughout calls us to believe that. Believe that. Believe that. It's true. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. What's he talking about here? Why does he start talking about the fact that Jesus didn't just absorb the wrath of God for us, but also for the whole world? Well, we know that means, we know it doesn't mean that everyone on the planet has their sins propitiated by Jesus Christ. That's clear from the teaching of Scripture. It's not as if everyone will be saved and all sins are born by Jesus. No, men and women will bear their own sin because they do not believe in Jesus Christ. They have not accepted the offer of salvation that heaven has given, the one offer that heaven has given. They've turned their backs on it, and so they will receive the punishment for their sins. So we know that it's not saying Jesus has died for the whole world because everybody on the planet throughout all human history will be saved. That's, we know that's not teaching that. Why would he say it this way? Jesus hasn't just died for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. And when you have an interpretive question about a Bible passage, here's what I want you to get good at. Go back to the purpose of the book. Why is this written? It's written to give these Christians an assurance that they are in the right before God because they believed in Jesus Christ. And those that are chirping at them, trying to get them to believe something else about Jesus, those who themselves do not have, uh, do not have love in their life, they, they do not love the brethren, those who are trying to sway them should not be listened to. So when he is writing to this group, this group feels like a minority right now. I mean, some of these departed people, you can see this in chapter 4, were, te- were trying to teach this church that was troubled. And John's saying, don't listen to them. Test the spirits. Are they from us? Are they carrying our apostolic message that we've received from God? Or are they preaching you a different message? Okay, then don't listen to them. Don't listen to those departed who are trying to teach you things. Do not You are in the right. Yeah, but they all left. I mean, there were 400 of us, and now there's only 25 of us. Are we really the ones in the right? Now you know why he said Jesus isn't just the propitiation for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. All those believers out there, they're with you. You might feel like a minority here, and they're the ones sauntering off and saying, we've got this new teaching about Jesus, you're in the wrong, and we're kind of troubled sitting here going, are you serious? There's only 25 of us. Maybe we're the ones in the wrong. He said, no, 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 Jesus died for your sins, and that's the same, he's the same Lord, the same forgiver of people. Go to the churches. Let's go to the churches over here in Macedonia. Let's go to the churches over here in Rome. Let's go. 
they're right there with you. He died for your sin. He died for their sin. You take comfort. You're not in the minority here and wrong. You might be in the minority, but you are children of God. It's a way of him comforting them by saying, you're not alone, church. You're not alone. Jesus is your Savior. He is their Savior. You're not alone here. I know the departed are telling you you're alone and you're in the wrong. You're not alone. You've had your sins forgiven. You're right with God. Rest there. Romans 8.34 Who is there to condemn? I love that question in Romans. I almost want to, you know, stop right there and kind of just look around. Who's there to condemn? Anybody, anybody want to say something about my standing before God? Anybody? Anybody? <laughs> Who's there to condemn you, church? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God. He's alive. What, what's he doing after he's been raised and is at the right hand of God? What's he doing? Sitting there waiting? No, he's praying. He's interceding for his own. More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. Jesus died for you. We sang, it's finished. His work is done. And now, as you still live in this flesh, you're children of God, but you still have battles as you live in this flesh, he is currently praying for you. What a Savior. Advocate, cleanser, propitiation, interceder, praying for us. I love the passage in Revelation 12. I'm just thinking about it right now. We don't, we don't need to turn there. Revelation 12 says that Satan, Satan is the accuser of the brethren. That's a title given to him. The accuser of the brethren who accuses them, us, before God day and night. And listen, friends, I know the devil is a liar, but he doesn't have to lie about me <laughs> and you. He can just be honest. They did this again. They did that again. He doesn't even have to lie, and he's right. And Revelation 12 says, and they overcame him. We overcome his accusations by the blood of the Lamb. Jesus Christ has died for us. He intercedes for us. No one to accuse. No one to accuse. I know I've told you this quote before, but I think it's so helpful when you think of Christ's intercession McShane said, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the other room, I would not fear a million enemies. And then he said, distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. Christ died for us, and he continues to intercede for us. The child of God does not pay for sin, and the apostle John wants Christians to know that and to be comforted by that. That's how we can be assured of our salvation because we don't pay for sin. So as we go through the rest of this book and we're thinking about assurance and having our hearts at rest, I just want you to know that your pastors are gonna be praying for you for the next number of months for you to rest your heart in the gospel work of Christ and that would give you an assurance of where you stand and when we do that, guess what we want to kill? Our own sin. Guess what we want to do? We want to walk in the light and we want to be honest. But at the end of the day, I want you to rest your soul in the love of Jesus Christ and the love of the Father. 
Let's pray. Father, thank you for your plan to save us. Thank you, Jesus Christ, for your desire to save us. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for calling us to the light. Thank you for inviting us just to be honest about our sin, and you will be a loving and tender Father who forgives. Father, I would ask you if there are those here walking in the darkness, hiding, denying, that you would give them people even today to walk in the light with. I pray that they would have a great conversation with you today where they are open and admit things they haven't admitted to you. And Father, as they do that, let them know and feel and trust in the forgiving love of your Son, Jesus Christ. I pray this in his name. Amen.